Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. Digital solutions have been a cornerstone of the healthcare industry for some time. Where are we today? And where is digital headed? On today's episode of Trending Health, we are taking a deeper look at this topic with Vynamic's head of health tech sector, Mary Verzi, and friend of Vynamic, Al Stromitz of Lifeguard Health Networks. With many years of health tech experience spanning across various healthcare organizations, including his current position at Lifeguard, Al is with us today to discuss some of the interesting evolution, opportunities, and challenges in the digital health space. Hey, Al, thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Mindy. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now and a little bit more about Lifeguard Health? Sure. I've been really blessed to be associated with Lifeguard for uh, the last eight years as an advisor for the last several and then joining in June uh, full-time as the executive responsible for digital healthcare transformation. And what that means is focusing across the healthcare ecosystem on capturing data to improve outcome, bring comfort to patients, and try to reduce costs throughout the system. So LifeGuard is a collaboration IT software that unifies physicians and those across the healthcare ecosystem with their patients, enabling to capture symptoms and side effects from a therapeutic engagement and surveillance perspective. What that means is regardless of the condition, a lifeguard is agnostic to be able to engage with any disease and any condition to help identify when a patient or a member or a critical a clinical trial person is uh, trending towards a adverse event to prevent hospitalizations. Al, you've been involved in the healthcare industry over the course of your career, and I imagine have witnessed some really interesting evolution, both you know, at the bigger healthcare industry at large, but also from a digital health perspective and how that's changed over the course of the last 10 years. I would love to know from your perspective, like what was it really like before COVID? And then what are we seeing happen since the, the introduction of the pandemic? Sure, great question. And you know, we see that a lot in publications and many internet blogs of what it was like before COVID and the rapid adoption of uh, telehealth and telemedicine because we didn't go into the physician ambulatory office. We only went into the emergency room unless there was a critical condition. I've seen early stage engagement with diagnostic devices with patients uh, in telemedicine 10 years ago. And it really was something that it was a nice to have played in rural health, but really was not adopted because the doctors were for it, the patients were for it, but what was the billable code that would enable reimbursement? At the end of the day, that's what everybody was mostly interested in. So there have been federal fundings 
for rural telemedicine that I had been a part of to the Native American Health Organization and those that are in the rural part of the country. Al, I think that makes complete sense. I think even one of the things we're starting to see, and Mindy, I agree with what you said in terms of the, the last 10 years of, of digital health evolution and, and investment. I do think um, part of the investment we've seen has really accelerated in the last three years with COVID. And I think what we really started to see was almost a marrying of investment coupled with need, not a want, not a desire, but, but a flat need across the industry. And that's where we really started to see the step change in the willingness to adopt technology. And I think that that willingness, at least from where we are today, is starting to become the norm, meaning it's sort of like the floor we're starting to work with, where it used to be the ceiling. It's really giving us a new floor. Yeah, you're right, Mary. Before COVID, there were pockets of innovation within the biotech, life sciences, pharma community that they tried to build some things on their own. Could they deploy vital signs monitors for patients at home? There was various types of video cameras that you could engage with a patient and a clinician from many miles away, regardless of what the condition. And many of the medical device manufacturers were able to produce various types of primary care devices for ear, nose, and throat, women's health, other types of uh, cardiac monitoring capability that can transmit data about a specific patient and the condition that they're experiencing to a physician for them to be able to make an informed decision about you know, what's happening uh, with their care at the moment. So before we dive into this deeply, I do want to just talk about the word digital because it's so ubiquitous. We see it showing up everywhere across the industry, and yet I don't really feel like there is this common definition that applies to every sector of healthcare. Curious, Mary, from your perspective, when we talk about defining digital, what do you think it means to providers, payers, and to the life sciences industry? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point, Mindy. I do think that digital health means different things to different people and different segments of the industry. And that is certainly the case for payers, providers, and life sciences companies. When I think about providers and I think about payers like in a similar, in somewhat similar way, um, I really think of them as a way to deliver access and support to their services via a technology. So I think what really comes to mind for me is like a technology-enabled service in delivering care. You see that as like hospital to the home, digital front doors, care beyond the doorstep, like those, those terms that we see coming up in, in the provider space really speak to how that industry or that segment really thinks about digital health. I think for payers, it's, it's very similar, but I think the intent behind it is, is slightly different, and that is more so around member satisfaction, improving outcomes, and collecting data so that they can ultimately lower costs. Like they're, what's in it for me, I think, is a little bit different than what you see with providers. I think when I, when I think about life sciences, I actually think about them a little bit differently when they talk about digital. And when they say digital and digital health, a lot of times what they're talking to is how they can engage with, with providers, HCPs, and how they can engage with patients and the different channels they can use to be able to engage with them digitally. They, they sort of have this different 
flavor of what digital health really means. I would agree, Mary. The emphasis since COVID has been what's going on with the patient in the moment and providing that information, uh, whether it be for a 15-minute teleconsultation or for a more advanced condition like cancer where a patient is able to use an app on their phone and be able to input symptoms and side effects from their therapy on a daily basis. And that triggers up to beyond a therapeutic threshold that would be sent or set by a clinician or a healthcare provider. And then that becomes a signal through the noise alert for action and an intervention. So micro-interventions can be provided to prevent hospitalizations. The healthcare provider health systems really adopted to Zoom and those types of teleconsultations. And from a payer perspective, what I've seen and what Lifeguard's seen is the big payers are very much interested in providing assistance to the overtaxed primary care doc nurses and being able to give them the tools or the collaboration communication capability with their patients. And like you said, to improve the experience, the satisfaction, how fast can you know the practice get back to me if I'm in pain or discomfort. And also the payers believe that their following of a therapeutic protocol may decide whether or not a person does a teleconsultation or calls 911, depending upon the severity, or uh, provides a prescription, and then, hey, let's touch base in several hours from that. So that's a little bit from a, a provider and a payer perspective. And from life sciences, we all know that there's a lot of talk about the decentralization of clinical trials. And really, what does that mean? It, at the end of the day, it all comes back to the data that we can capture between when a patient, a member, or a trial participant is not in the ambulatory office for blood work or other types of diagnostic testing. I think it's so interesting when you think about how different sectors within the health industry actually define what digital means, and then you think about the result of that, which is a very crowded marketplace with companies offering either bits and pieces of, of services that meet those expectations or needs. So Al, I'm curious, when you think about a crowded digital health market, what are some of the differentiation factors for companies that stand out and to make them successful? And what would you be advising companies to do right now in this market? You know, there's a tremendous amount of investment funding that's out there. Those startups or those large organizations that are either trying to reinvent the wheel and not leapfrog to the ability to improve outcomes or better experiences with their patients is don't reinvent the wheel. Be able to take years of development like Lifeguard has done and be able to partner with healthcare institutions, academic medical centers, and those institutions are smart enough now to realize, hey, I have to hitch my wagon to this organization because they've captured lightning in a bottle. They really differentiate because 
they can prevent hospitalizations and engage at the point of care. As we had mentioned earlier, the vernacular of what digital means really means being able to identify where patients are trending from that data that gets captured, either self-reported as a patient-reported outcome measure, which is very prevalent in the uh, clinical pharmaceutical industry, but also being able to, when you have a sick child, be able to be a proxy. And there's a lot of technologies that can capture vitals. Many of them are condition and disease specific for say endocrinology and diabetes. Uh, but there's also the ability for many new trends around Alzheimer's and dementia to be able to have a proxy, a husband, a wife, a spouse, be able to identify when their loved one is trending and report those measures and that signal be identified by the clinical team, the care team, to be able to say, hey, we need to intervene sooner than later. It's definitely a, a crowded market. And I think we're even starting to see some, some signals, and that might be a slight understatement, of slowdown in the investment that they've seen for the past 10 years. And we're starting to see, it, I think, some of those signals just, just this year with, with big tech companies starting to do more layoffs, get a little bit more lean. And I think this is, this is going to present a challenge for some of the, the smaller digital health companies that really, I would say, like rode the wave, so to speak, during COVID. And I think if I were advising them, I would, I, would, I would tell them to get really, really clear on their growth strategy, how they're articulating their value and differentiation, and be really clear about who they're targeting and who they're not and what that, really what that value proposition is. I think during the pandemic, when the need for innovation was high and investment was high, and those, those, we talked about that earlier, it was like really married together, digital health companies sort of could sort of ride through that really, or, really organically and grow a lot of revenue. I think as things are slowing down, there's going to be a real need for them to be more disciplined, more have prioritization, and, and really like place really good strategic bets for the long term that's going to enable them to outpace others in growth. And I think it's really a really healthy time for, for these types of businesses to be like reevaluating their business strategy or fine-tuning a business strategy to make sure they, they're there for the long term and they have that right growth strategy. As maybe a slight aside to that, that question about, about like digital health and the crowded market, there's like one area I'm really interested in watching evolve a little bit more. And that's more in what I will consider like prevention, wellness space of digital health and really like a little bit, Alec, to your point about like, how do you, how do you stop? How do you prevent something from happening? But really this, this thought of like, how do you do better in, in, in the actual prevention of disease to begin with? And how do you get better, better monitoring with that? So I'll be really interested over the next couple of years, how those companies sort of like move through the health continuum from what, what we we all see today is like slightly more reactive to this more this like prevention and wellness care and digital health. I'm just I'm like maybe selfishly just like really interested and in see how that how that shapes up. Yeah, you know, my thoughts as we look at the crowded marketplace, we know that all of our clinicians are dependent upon the electronic medical record. And the inability for that record to really be actionable outside of an acute hospital environment or lab testing center or a diagnostic area. 
there's a report that comes, and that's great. What happens from moment to moment, day to day, when a person is trending towards an ailment, a sickness, if they are rising risk, if they're overweight, if they're not following a uh, exercise or proper food diet regimen. And the primary care doc acts like the quarterback and being able to have the transparency and the visibility into the home is very much something that the payers through uh, value-based contracting and outcomes-based contracting are going to be interested in. And those mobile applications, very similar to those to where we would you know, track our diet or capture how many steps we take, those different types of things are still going to be beneficial to where you look holistically at the person, the patient, the member, to keep them on the side of wellness rather than trending towards the side of sickness. And uh, prevention is definitely the area that the payers are very much interested in as well. Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's it's like the, the beginning, right, of the next, I think, almost like health 2.0 in terms of where we see the focus for payers and where they think the importance is in trying to drive wellness. And for many years, right, it was really hard for payers to do that. And now there's tools out there that they can adopt and utilize. Uh, I think some of this is going to be about how do you unlock engagement with members. It's not as simple as having a tool, but how do you actually get to the human behavioral sciences piece of it to get them engaged in their own health? Exactly. Uh, And if I could tie a thread back to something that was mentioned a little bit earlier, the engagement is very important. And that connotation has different aspects if you're a healthcare provider, a health system, a payer, health plan, employer, and also the life sciences pharma. And again, when we engage, we want to understand how that person is doing. And if they have comorbid conditions like COPD, cancer, and diabetes, and depression, then you're really trying to manage several things at one time. And oftentimes, we, as patients and consumers, have a certain what's called reporting bias, is when we go to our doctor, uh, we say, oh, yeah, you know, this is how I ate, or I got these, you know, many miles in walking, but being able to track it on a daily basis to measure it is really something from an engagement perspective. So you can have patient engagement and you can have patient monitoring of how you're doing on your condition, but then it comes down to the therapeutic that's treating your condition. And are you adherent? How is that condition and your medication regimen being able to be adhered to? Are you answering questions from your provider about your uh, daily mood and your ability to be mobile. These are all types of things and data points that get captured using uh, some type of artificial intelligence that are able to say, here's a person with a condition. These are the thresholds. Are they above, below? How can we manage uh, and be more effective with their care? Yeah, I think, Al, that's, it's, it's such a good point. I love that you took the lens of a patient that might have several conditions. Because I actually think, not to pick on the life sciences industry in any way, shape, or form on this podcast, but 
I do think that's where life sciences companies are going to fall a little short in patient engagement is each one of them is really trying to engage with a patient for their specific therapeutic area or disease state. And a lot of patients might have multiple medicines that they're taking at a time. And they really just want it. I think patients really just want one place of engagement. They don't want to be, if they have several ailments, they don't want to be having several apps from several different pharma companies to be able to engage with them. They really want to find patients that are like them, but also with the backing more of the the physician and the provider than the life science company. And I think that's going to be a tough pill for life sciences to swallow, Mm -hmm. if I can make a joke. I think it's going to be hard for them to wrap their minds around that as as much as they want to really break into patient engagement with their with their patient populations. One of the things, as we know across healthcare for the last several years, is the degree of interoperability and integration and who can share data for the common good of man. The organizations that have either created their own APIs, those connections between different types of applications and softwares are the ones that will succeed faster than those that won't. When you have a platform like LifeGuard that can widen the circle of care and be able to include the endocrinologist, your oncologist, your primary care doc, as I mentioned earlier, that's the the quarterback that's looking at all the information holistically, and even if that person is on a clinical trial, how is that information shared collectively across that entire continuum care team? And that's definitely something that if that's part of a digital application that somebody's working on, they will succeed faster than those that don't cooperate and don't have that collaborative uh, sense of healthcare improvement for all. You know, as both of you were, were talking about it from the patient lens, what was going on through my mind and what I was thinking about is another aspect of what's going on in the healthcare environment, right, is tremendously big challenge that we have of a workforce shortage. And so I'm curious from your perspective, Al, like realistically, I think it begs the question, with so much pressure to move patients through the exam room, how much do you think clinicians, nurses, physicians, the office are utilizing digital health tools to actually create better patient experiences? Yeah, absolutely. The nurses are unsung heroes. We know that through uh, COVID, you know, for sure, and the fatigue of, of the docs. But the nurses, we can't thank them enough. There's not going to be enough of them going in the future. There's various types of change management that needs to take place within a hospital system and even smaller practices. For example, there's a local Philadelphia primary care practice that's got 10 docs and they see 25,000 patients. Some of those docs don't know that they can bill an invoice for their time engaging with the patient. One of the things, as you had just mentioned, is the operational improvement that can happen by patients reporting their conditions and let there be a red flag, let there be the signal that gets responded to when you're outside of that threshold that you've agreed to with your your physician. And that enables the nurses not to be as burdened to be able to get back to every single patient every single day. We know that pain 
you know, is chronic for some, and we want to be able to respond to it as quickly as possible. And that's a patient satisfaction and a patient experience that gets improved by using digital information, the data that should be actionable, not just every signal that comes from a parent calling about their child that's sick, is that there are many different levels of uh, scrutiny of symptoms and side effects that can move the process that much more efficiently. Even in an oncology practice, the physician wants to be able to spend optimal time. And one of the things that LifeGuard offers is a longitudinal view, as I mentioned, to try to reduce that patient bias of them underreporting or overreporting and being able to have the nurse as they triage you into the office before you see the physician and the physician be able to say, hey, you've got a lot of green here of when you've been responsive on a daily basis about your condition, symptoms, and side effects. Or, or the converse to that is, hey, I see that you've missed some reporting here. You were trending towards a toxicity event and you know that could have gotten you into the ER. So there's the types of things that a technology that is connecting the home where the patient is back to the clinician, into the EMR, and making that data actionable. To dive into that a little bit deeper, when we think about healthcare as an industry, right, it tends to be very risk averse. And so cascade that down to healthcare organizations that tend to be very risk averse. Adopting new technologies, I imagine, would be a very difficult thing in that type of environment. So what do you think facilitates adoption? Ease of not adding additional burden to their workday. What we've realized at LifeGuard is asking nurses to add a person and onboard them to the LifeGuard application complicates their day. It's something else they have to learn. And what we've done is be able to integrate into the EMR, enabling when the physician is in the patient record in front of the patient and says, I'd like to prescribe for you lifeguard, they can send an invitation right from the EMR. And then that person has videos and step-by-step -step instructions that can onboard them and they can be up and running in 15 minutes. Oftentimes when you are introducing adoption not only for clinicians and patients alike, it comes down to encouragement, usage, and from a clinician and a nurse practice perspective, it enables them to invoice for the time that they spend in managing symptoms and side effects of their patients when a signal arises. Or it enables them to see more patients because they're not spending the 10 minutes of triage when we first go into the office to say, have your medications changed? How do you feel? Those different types of questions often detract from the physician seeing more patients throughout the day. Physician makes more money, bonuses are able to be provided, and it's a trickle effect of where collaboration enhances the success of, of care management. I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's that usability you mentioned about earlier. It's like adoption. You have to make it as easy as possible for the technology to be adopted. And, and to do that, it's much easier said than done. You really have to understand the easiest way for the, the end user, any user of that application. What is their day like? What are they doing? What, 
it's really that persona building, I'll say, to make sure that you truly understand what it's like for them to be able to build that easy user experience for them to be able to adopt it. And I think that that point you even mentioned about once they ad adopt the technology, it's how are, you, how are you serving the insights at the right time to be able to make it actionable rather than maybe burying it somewhere in, in the application or making it after the fact? Where do, you, where do you like find the exact right timing? I think is also, it sounds like you guys have that under, under control, but it's really making sure that you're doing it at the exact right time. The insight has to be served exactly when you know, the doctor's going hit to the, hit the room or exactly when the action can be taken or the intervention can be taken. Yeah, for sure. You know, the founders uh, both come to LifeGuard with their own personal experiences. The one founder's son is a type 1 diabetic, and his mother and father wanted to be able to make sure that he checked his glucose 10, 12 times uh, as the therapy had called for. The other founder was a, had breast cancer and used LifeGuard to manage her condition. And her husband, who was her proxy when she didn't feel well, would input some of her reported measures and notice that she was trending towards toxicity. So, Mary, to your point earlier of when does a patient and a care team that either lives under the same roof or is in an ambulatory office is able to identify when those trends are likely to prevent an unnecessary event or hospitalization. It becomes, again, encouragement. If you can't input the measure yourself, you have a proxy, or from a care team perspective, it's the encouragement from the physician that this is going to help their care journey be less painful and prevent hospitalizations. Those stories are so compelling, Al, and I think inspiring in so many ways when you see that individuals have such a passionate pursuit for a better way and are able to translate that into a solution that not only improves their management of, of their conditions, but they're able to roll that out to the general public. Earlier in the conversation, one of the things we were talking about is making it easier for stakeholders. And Mary, I know you mentioned it, and Al, you also mentioned it. As you think about taking LifeGuard out to the market and expanding their position, what kind of questions should decision makers be asking themselves as they contemplate all these various solutions that we just talked about that are basically present in the marketplace? Yeah, there's uh, for sure a lot of shiny objects that are out there and many organizations trying to gain the attention of the chief medical officer across the board of the healthcare ecosystem. Healthcare providers, again, wanting something that can ease their daily care burden for their patients, but up the food chain at the C executive level, what are the types of tools and technologies and applications that are gonna prevent hospitalizations? Or what are the types of capabilities that will reduce the length of stay by an early intervention when a person does have to come to the ER or be admitted? The other types of things from a quality perspective are the Prescani and the merit incentive payment types of allocations that are out there or for the enhanced oncology model. These are all types of things that the docs can bill for their time engaging with the patient. And 
so there's a revenue cycle increase. There's the quality compliance for the value-based care contracts that they are subscribing to. But it's also the ability to show the efficacy. And at the end of the day, how have you intervened early? How have you prevented a hospitalization or a fatality? How have you improved the ability for the practice to respond in a timely way for a patient that's in pain or a child that's in pain? And being able to provide that sense of comfort and you know, removed anxiety. The technology, we can always get to work. It's the adoption and the continual encouragement that I've mentioned earlier a couple of times by the physician advocating to their patient that these are the types of things that are proven, shown to have an impact favorably on how their journey could be. Maybe, Al, the other thought I was having as you were, as you were chatting, too, is even how, how a technology in service like Lifeguard would, would also help with the health equity, like across. It's, it's really like it's saving people from what could be a trip to, to the hospital. But in doing so, it's also, I would say, like acting as a way that is quite equitable, just based off their own patient's journey, not having to go to the hospital, re-explain your symptoms to somebody who is busy. People come with their own biases as well. And so I, I just think, you know, it's just something that came to mind to me as you were, as you were talking, like that health equity piece really kind of shines through as you, as you were talking about, about the benefits, I guess, of, of this sort of technology. Every organization across the healthcare ecosystem is chartered now with chief health equity officers. And what that really means is being able to provide access and be able to address their clinical as well as their social determinant needs that we identified through COVID that are so pronounced. Uh, I remember Dr. Fauci saying, that in the next 10 years, the number one biggest thing that needs to be addressed in healthcare is health equity and the social determinants of health. And these are the types of things where those organizations that are really leading edge around language translation and being able to engage in your native tongue. Lifeguard is multilingual and being able to engage in various ethnicities where their degree of comfort with a person that speaks their language versus a person that doesn't, whether it be in an emergency room, which we know translation capabilities can be, but even in the home, even with sharing and building a care team within Lifeguard. You know, if a Latino adult woman has cancer, their degree of privacy is significant in not wanting to share. But if they have daughters, if they have sisters, if they have other people in the family, being able to share information that's in their native tongue and be able to engage with the clinician improves equity. Understanding that the inability to take two buses to go for chemotherapy or any type of clinical therapy may be a hassle for them. And how can a oral oncolytic benefit for a patient that's home, but be able to touch base with a clinician when they may be trending with a fever or they have problems with their bowels. And what are those measures that are not vitals related 
that we all have at different times that can be captured and used to ease that patient's journey. So Mary and Al, we could be talking about this for quite some time, but it is time to wrap it up. I want to thank you both for joining the Dynamic team on Trending Health and the Spotlight episode on Lifeguard Health. Mindy, uh, Mary, thank you very much. This has really been an enriching opportunity to hear from both of your perspectives, being able to share amongst leaders across uh, the healthcare ecosystem has been very important to me to try to give back. And I would say, you know, simply Lifeguard was designed for patients, built for nurse triage teams, but engineered for the institution. So we can all say that we've contributed to the, the value of changing healthcare. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change. Please visit trendinghealth.com.